you're listening to This Is Why Podcast. My guest today is Marty Nemko, widely considered one of the top career coaches in America and the host of Work with Marty Nemko, which is on NPR. Do you have specific advice for millennials? I certainly have a specific advice for young people. Yeah. I don't feel envious of young people growing up now because we do live in a world where it is so expensive to hire an American full-time with benefits because of <clears throat> increased costs of Social Security, um, workers' compensation, paid family leave, Obamacare, rights of wrongful termination, that the uh, OSHA regulations, all kinds of regulations that make it impossible very difficult to hire an American. And so ever more jobs in your in millennial generation are going to be part-time, tempt, offshored, and most importantly, automated. We're already seeing because the cost of hiring an American is going so rising, there is it becomes more and more cost effective for companies to develop uh, robots. And now they are there's a major conference that's occurring about the use of robots as everything from 360 burger per hour burger makers automatically replacing the very often unreliable workers to retail uh, robots walking around Osh and Target helping you find what you want and telling you how much inventory there is in the back. So that's the big worry I have about millennials, that uh, the automization of so many jobs and offshoring of the rest is going to uh, make life very difficult for the DePaul students of the world. The Harvard students will do fine. Um, those who have really great family connections will do fine. But the average person attending whatever, you know, uh, University of Nebraska or, uh, or DePaul is going to struggle unless they're really driven or unless they're very technical and have brilliant leadership skills. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the rise of the robots. Uh, I I have a, a recent edition of The Economist, and it's the title is March of the Machines. And I wanted, there. I was reading uh, this article, March of the Machines, and it says, high-skill workers w will benefit disproportionately from the technological change. You hear that a lot. And one thing I always wonder is it's very vague, and I like details. So we hear all this talk about these high-skilled workers or workers with special skills that will benefit. What yeah. are those skills? Is it just coding, or what is it? It can be a combination. It's, it's, but it's really only going to apply to a very small number of people because it takes a very small number of people, 100 or 1,000, whatever, to create a robot like Pepper, the new robot that apparently has emotional intelligence that can read your, it's got face recognition and can read your, your facial expression so they can be really perfectly responsive. It's going to say it takes a thousand people to create that. There'll be electrical engineers, there'll be computer scientists, of course there'll be marketers, there'll be the, the people who create the the outside, the fabricators of the, uh, the uh, uh, melamine or whatever the outside uh, is going to be. but. You know, once you've created the first one, a machine is going to create the next million of them. That's the difficulty in with jobs in the information age. That in the old days, when something had to be manufactured, there was an assembly line, and people had to manufacture it one by one. 
Today, much of the products are either software or software driven. And once it, it, as soon as you create the first one, they have those first couple of dozen who may click, click a computer game. They push a button and millions more get created without a single person. With cars, I have visited the Tesla plant. Unlike the General Motors plant or the Ford plant, you walk into Tesla plants on the assembly line and there's almost nobody there. It's all robots. So that's the problem. Um, and therefore, there will only be a small number of jobs for those high-level knowledge workers. But there are vested interests at the universities especially who want to continue to feel relevant in charging their ridiculous amounts of money. But by the way, the four-year cost of a private university, when you take everything into consideration, is uh, even I'm not talking about a Harvard, I'm talking about a DePaul, is a, a quarter of a million dollars per student. And that's assuming you graduate in four years, and you well know that many people don't. And these colleges, they just want, they want to get more and more students, so they, and they know how desperate young people are to find employment at the end. So they've got to sell that, that, uh, that their university degree is going to make you more employable. So they point to the knowledge workers, the information age. But the reality is there's only going to be a small percentage of people hired, and the punchline is they're just as easily hireable in China for a fraction of the cost or India. Or, or, or Thailand than they are here. And so that's why I'm not envious of the millennial generation. Is they're, they're facing a very difficult work world. Well, that's very depressing. <laughs> oh, to be honest. Yeah. And it's one guy's opinion. I'm sure you can get somebody who's much more optimistic on your show next time. What are those specific skills? So is it just the uh, high tech stuff is it just coding and i said it was electrical engineers okay programmers leaders marketing people people who are fabrication engineers who will create the the high impact plastics on the outside it is going to be a combination you know, there'll always be a need for some high level financiers if i am somebody who's starting a, a robotics business i need engineers i need computer programmers i need materials engineers I need finance people to raise money who are the who understand the art of, of convincing banks and uh, private investors, private equity firms, angel firms, venture capitalists to give me the money I need to create my robots. But there's still a relatively small number of those jobs. But there will be jobs like that across the board across, every time there's a new innovation, but a repeated innovation. So, for example, you know, we all use Microsoft Word. Well, fine. So, you know, there's going to be, a, I'm sure there's 50 people working on the next generation of Microsoft Office and the various items in the suite. But once that, when that once version 11.0 is created, they just push a button and there'll be millions more that will be available. And they won't even be created. There's no more like even going to put them in a, in a box. They'll simply be one, the original source, not source code, but the program will be online and people simply download it. No people required. Yeah, the classic uh, comparison is Instagram versus Kodak. You know? Right. So are you a techno-optimist or techno-pessimist? So there's sort of people that are like, oh, people said the same thing during the Industrial Revolution, we'll be fine, technology ultimately creates more jobs than it destroys. And that's, that that's the traditional argument, and it's been made, but the big I've tried to highlight already the real differences here is that there were, there were always, there always, in this case, with so much product, 
being being able to be created or in an automated way and the offshore the global economy thing is huge we are moving in america toward an ever more let's just say redistributive direction where employers are going to be providing more and more having to by law require to provide more and more to workers that's only going to make employers want to as i said either automate or offshore so you have a perfect it's like a one-two punch uh, against the young millennials and trying to find good jobs. One is the fact that there is a, that ever more of the of the things that people are buying are things that can be created by a machine, by a computer. And two is with the American ever higher cost of hiring an American, companies that need to hire people are going to part-time, offshore, etc. because so much work product can be shipped overseas. You know, like you and I, we're on video, but we could have a Skype conversation while it's not the same as being in the same room. It's certainly, you know, not, it doesn't prohibit us from working effectively together as we're doing right now. So if I'm a company and I can get somebody in China or India or, or Bangladesh for three or $5 an hour, and I can, um, why would I hire you at $20 an hour plus all the benefits and then you're going to sue me for lawful termination? When I hear stuff like this, and uh, do you know, do you know Douglas Rushkoff? Are you aware of him? I've heard the name. I know nothing about. Uh, he wrote a book a few years back, and he said that coding is like liter literacy was in the medi medieval ages. It's it's what the elite knows how to do it, and it's sort of this power thing. Do you think not everybody needs to learn how to code? But if you're young and you want to do well, you should learn how to code, whether you're inclined in that direction or not. No, it's a maybe. Like I said, there will be some jobs, absolutely, for coders. But because you're competing in a worldwide market, if you're not really naturally good at it, sure, fine. Take, you know, go get the, uh, you know, the, the manual for C and either try to learn it by your, a little bit by yourself or take a course. If you've got a natural aptitude for it and you're kind of liking it, fine. But if you're not really that good at it and you really not like it, you're going to fail at it because they'll, you're never going to compete as well at your American salary for some Chinese, some Indian programmer who's really making three or five bucks an hour. So yes, it's a skill, but I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's like writing. Everybody's got to do it. I do not agree with that. So if you were, if, if it was an 18 year old going into college, you, do you think they should sort of think when they're choosing a major and a path, think about questions like what jobs can a robot do? Like massage therapist. Now the question, yeah, there's some of that. That's certainly right. The the non-automatable jobs is one way to go. But I am a kind of a radical on this issue, and I know your fellow students are going to hate me. I would <laughs> I wouldn't go to college. I know that most employers today require it, but the cost and the opportunity cost is so huge. <clears throat> if you're at all entrepreneurial, I would say. Go and certainly you can take some, some courses that are really highly rated on Coursera or edX, which are free. Um, you know, I, I, the, the joyous life in the dorm of getting drunk, getting late and going to the ball game is not worth $250,000. I know it's very, you know, the lifetime connections, but in reality, that's again, oversold. If I, if, if, I mean, if my son or daughter were a lazy slacker and really needed the structure of school to keep from just getting stoned all day, yeah, I'll send them to college because they need the structure, but I sure wouldn't spend the money on DePaul. I would be sending them to a community college or then a local state public university because the frac cost is a fraction. You know, Harvard or Stanford, you know, we live in a designer label society, so you can't turn that down because 
it's going to be very impressive. There's a lot of super smart kids, but I ain't going to be spending any kind of big, you know, big dollars on DePaul. Even, you know, and they're not going to give me a free ride. They're going to give me a, going to give me a big grant, maybe if I'm lucky the first year. And then it's going to be a lot of loan after that. I, I wouldn't go there. I would teach, I'd get my kid to work as either one of two things, either as an actor, as a working at the elbow of a great entrepreneur so they can learn entrepreneurship skills. So instead of being a wage slave, that person could learn how to create those new businesses. And that makes a lot of sense. And if that person was not entrepreneurially oriented, I probably would, uh, I, I would, if they were crafty, if there was somebody who was really good at repairing things or building things, that, as you said, that can't be offshored. I'd probably have them learn how to be a robotics technician or a medical equipment technician or a, a industrial equipment uh, technician, because uh, those jobs will always pay well. They're high demand and they're, they're not statusy, so people aren't going into them because uh, our government, for whatever reason, is pushing this notion of college for everyone again. But so there are not a lot of people going to these highly skilled blue collar fields. That's what I would do. Let, let me just push back on that, play devil's advocate. Like, you know, you you are probably pretty well connected. You could probably get your child to work at the elbow of uh, an, a good entrepreneur. But what is an average person going to if they don't know entrepreneurs, isn't that difficult to do to sort of become an apprentice? Far easier than uh, than if uh, than the alternative going sitting in the in the class for all those years learning all that hard irrelevant stuff taught by professors who are out of touch in uh, in their ivory towers. Uh, you know that's a very important skill. Just like you reached out to me, you didn't know me at all, and yet I am a pretty well well known, fairly eminent guy. And I just said yes because I like helping the younger generation. Yeah. I love it. So, you know, the same attribute, the same chutzpah that you just showed in, in reaching out to me, some, I could have blown you off. I might have been busy. It happened, I happened to have the time, and I like doing it. So great. Teaching young people the art of banging down doors in a polite, respectful way, that's a useful life skill. And, you know, with connections or without, if you come off as earnest, serious, respectful, willing to learn, responsible, nice person, you will get some entrepreneur willing to, to, you may get his coffee, which is just fine. You may go and do his errands, that's just fine. But you will get to observe him or her close up in action. And that is more valuable than all the business courses taught by Professor Hassan Pfeffer, who is going to give you case studies from Walmart, which has no, imp no impact on what you're going to be like as a, in running your small business. I, li I really like specifics. I'm just curious. Uh, so let's take um, let's take uh, Peter Thiel. Yeah, I'm sure you know him. You know, yes. Uh, but he's a he's a big time name, but a smaller version of him. You, well, how do you find his email? Then you email him and say, "Hi, I'm this person who hasn't gone to college. You don't know me. Can I get your coffee? I mean, how does that actually?" Work. You would you would avoid a designer. You wouldn't go to a Peter Thiel. Yeah. Chris, he runs he runs this boot camp for Harvard Stanford people who would get go to Harvard Stanford and said hell with it, it's not worth it. No, if you let's say for whatever reason in your life already you let's say your dad was an auto mechanic or whatever, and but you see you've learned growing up learned something about auto mechanics and or the world of cars and let's say you really love the idea of maybe owning your own dealership someday maybe a, an electric car dealership. 
you would go and you would make a list of all of the of the electric car dealerships in the geographic area in which you're going to live, and you write a, a really polite email or a phone call. They're not that inaccessible. The only people who are inac inaccessible are gonna, are going to be the the Madonnas uh, of the world, the uh, and the super famous people. Don't to hell with the famous people. Focus on people who are successful, who have great Yelp reviews. Uh, you know, in your in whatever field you're curious about. I'm looking right now at a couple of roses that are in a vase. You know, there's a whole industry called roses. If you like roses, I would find the finest, whether it be florists or flower growers or importers, and I would write to 20 of them. You can't write to one or two because most of them are going to blow you off. But if you write to 20 and make follow-up phone calls to 20, there's a damn good chance that one of you is going to give you a shot. One of them is going to give you a shot. And you just say, hi, my name is blah, blah, blah. You don't crap about what your name is. That I can't, it really is, it's, you know, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So mm -hmm. if you start a letter with, hi, my name is Jonathan Schwartz, that ain't going to, that's going to be, that's going to make you appear like the classic millennial <laughs> self-absorbed narcissist. Nobody cares what your name is. Mm -hmm. gonna, your name is going to be, and it's redundant anyway, because at the bottom of your letter, it's going to have your name. Yeah. So all stupid people start a letter with, hi, my name is. And that's, so that's a huge turnoff. But you say, I'm at the cusp of making a big, scary decision. Everybody says go to college, but I also hear how, A, how expensive it is and how little people grow. There have been good studies, like a study, a study called Academically Adrift, that shows that almost half of students grow not at all in writing critical thinking skills and mathematical reasoning. And, you know, so before I spend my parents' money, I don't want to just be a, you know, a conformist. I see myself eventually owning my own business, and I realize right now I know nothing. So I'm interested in apprenticing with a master. I looked at your Yelp reviews and I saw how many five-star reviews you got, both for your competence and your ethics. And it would be an honor to work for you. I'd be willing to get your coffee, do your errands, whatever you ask in exchange for your mentorship. Might you be willing to consider talking with me? That letter and that kind of follow-up phone call is the kind of skill that, you, that really is important and will, if you are persistent enough, get you that internship a hell of a lot easier, more easily, than if you go to go the college route. Yeah, what I don't I don't want to get stuck in uh, the minutiae of some broader questions, but I was listening to a talk you gave, and you were talking about MBAs, and you said write down the the companies you want to work for, and call them, ask if I get this MBA, will you be more likely to hire me? And I heard that, and I just wondered, uh, you know, like okay, so it, let's say it's Walmart. I go online, I look Walmart, you know, wh whose number, wh whose job do you call? You know, the sort of details of that. Yeah, uh, that's the, uh, I have, that was a number of years ago, and I've kind of evolved from that. Because society is getting ever busier, ever more overwhelmed, you're not going to get calls back as easily. So, uh, you know, I think the era of the informational interview is over. I think you get your information from the Internet by Googling pros and cons of MBAs, pros and cons of MBAs, large corporations. And you'll get to websites like Quora and others that will give you feedback. Getting somebody on the phone cold from a big corporation is gonna be very hard unless you know somebody. Now for young people, very often, either their friends' parents or their own parents know somebody. And it doesn't have to be one particular company. The other thing is, the sometimes you need to rely on common sense. Yes, in general, as you, it, it only makes sense that a, a large prestigious employer 
is going to prefer somebody with an MBA to not. But that's not the question. The question is, is the incremental advantage of your marketability and your skills of getting that MBA worth the time and money versus what you otherwise could be doing with the time? So if I wanted to become an executive at Walmart, for whatever reason, if I really loved that company above others, I might, what I would do is I would walk into the store and I would speak to a store manager, assistant store manager, whoever. And I would ask for, and I would say, this is my vision for whatever reason. I really, you know, while I know that, that Walmart is facing enormous competition from Amazon, somehow I really like, I still like the concept. I like that you still sell fishing equipment and whatever the hell it is. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for me as to how I might have a, a, what would be a good launch pad for me in, uh, in launching a career in management at Walmart. And let's say he says, you know, uh, I really think you should start on the floor, but then make yourself well known uh, to, the, to management and whatever. I would do, maybe do that. But I'm not a big fan of paying dues, actually. I would try to find somebody in that massive organization called Walmart Corporate. And I would just, I would be applying for any, any job within Walmart corporate. If I didn't have any edges, I would just make an amazing application right through the front door. It's not so easy for a big corporation like that to get good people for their, for their entry level jobs that are not really sexy. I would make an amazing application. That would be a great letter, not only a great resume, but then I would supplement with a piece of what I call collateral material that would separate me from the rest of the pile. Now, I'm well aware that initially the, a computer is going to read my resume and my applications. But eventually, as long as my, app, my resume is tailored to the particular job, then they're going to see a cover letter and a piece of collateral material like, for example, let's say this entry-level management job is, is in the human resources department. I might write a one-pager that said seven keys to being a, 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 an excellent entry-level uh, uh, human resources person. And then in my cover letter, I would say, this gives, please look at this attached one pager. It gives you a window into the way in which I think. That's going to differentiate you from the millions of slackers who are going to apply and just send a generic resume and cover letter. And now you're in the door. And then it's a matter of being a rock star, working hard, working smart, and being a good networker. Does that make sense? Let's say I, I want to work for Starbucks, Walmart. I pick all these companies I want to work in management for. And I haven't gone to college. And I send out resume and it says have you gotten an mba are you sure it doesn't just say oh you haven't gone to college well that's another application we don't need to look at of and course some are going to do that some are going to reject you out of hand okay but not always you only need one job the good news is you can compensate you know the cost of the degree is so enormous the undergraduate degree cost of time and money is so enormous that any of these strategies is look are going to be so much cheaper and faster, instant, and as long as you do a great job of that reaching out, a consistent job of reaching out, you're much more likely to get a launch pad. Now, sometimes what happens is you'll get employed for some crappy job at, within the Walmart, you know, thousands of employees, and then you'll get to the point where they say, you know, we just have a hard and fast rule. You actually have to have a bachelor's. But at that point, sometimes the corporation will pay for you to get the bachelor's if you've proven yourself already. But I'm not such a big fan of sitting and listening to some theoretical course that's going to try to, you know, when I go to college, I don't know about the call, but in general, I'm on the coast, I'm on, you know, the West Coast. Most colleges here, their main job is to radicalize you. They want you to realize that capitalism sucks 
and that uh, that all, that black lives really matter, and that it's white privilege and white male privilege, and uh, and uh, and the corporations are ruining the environment. And it, what it does is it it qualifies you to hold a placard, but you're unemployable because you are just angry and and unskilled. And so, you know, today's universities have dramatically changed. I have no idea about DePaul. Uh, it's had, it has kind of reputation for middle of the road uh, in terms of politically. It's not a radical school, at least it's the, the, my recollections. But, you know, in most colleges, you come out in many ways dysfunctional. So before I go and give them my quarter of a million and take on all that student debt, which is the only debt that cannot be discharged through bankruptcy, the higher education lobby is so powerful. They were able to get the government to say, you cannot declare bankruptcy from your student loan. Before I give him all that money, take on all that loan, learn all that crap that I may really, that most people really never do remember, I'm going to make a very concerted effort to try to get a launch pad job with an ethical, successful employer and learn whatever I can. And it may not be at the Walmarts, because the bigger the company, the more the firewalls they have for you getting in. Yeah. I would rather work for a, somebody who's a known commodity. A, a successful, ethical, small business owner in my own community. Because you go get the job at Walmart, you could be working for a jerk. And this way, you know you're screening out anybody, you're only screening in, you're only willing to work for people who customer after customer says, this business owner is a mensch, is a person of character. You said that you, uh, you're a hermit by nature. You're not, I, you're not the most social person, correct? I would hermit's a bit strong, but I, I, I do. Enjoy, I love. To, I'm grateful for my work life, so I spend a lot of time uh, writing with my clients, doing my radio show, uh, playing with my dog, and I also I do enjoy gardening, and I'm a pianist, so I do a lot of stuff that is solo. But I, you know, I'm married. I love my wife. We've been together a lot of years, and I have a daughter, and uh, have a couple of very close friends. So hermit's too strong. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Exaggeration, but. Uh... Is the I assume you've done a lot of the stuff. For instance, you said something. Uh, I was listening to another one of your talks, and you said go to the bookstore and talk to the owner and say, "Who's the smartest person who goes here? Find that person, and take them to lunch." And I thought it was great advice. But there's there's a difference between like thinking about doing it and doing it. That's I, was just, I was just wondering, like. Did you have experience sort of overcoming uh, insecurity and uh, reaching out? Is there a trick to that? Okay, this is very important. I had a conversation. I can't. I don't want to mention his name. Probably, I'll just say, one of the world's most eminent experts in procrastination. And he's written book after book, article after article about overcoming procrastination. But privately, in our conversation, he said, Marty, you can't cure it. People who are fear-filled, they're fear-filled, they're procrastinating because they know that they're incompetent, that they make a poor impression. Uh, and it's not what their mother said to them because there are plenty of people whose mother said you were useless and ended up because they weren't useless. They were really smart and capable and good-looking, which unfortunately matters in this world. They reached out. So the people who are endlessly procrastinating and fear-filled, being really honest with you, I think those people are really in trouble because it's real. I have written a ton about overcoming procrastination. I've read books and interviewed people about it. And yet in my own practice, I have very poor success 
in helping people who are inveterate procrastinators. I have fear of failure, fear of success. I really am I'm wrapped up in knots. And you know what? They end up not doing much. And especially, you know, we're moving in a country toward legalization of marijuana. But I've done a, a, a lot of research into this, including speaking with the most eminent people. I read, wrote a review of the literature in time. Pot really does decrease motivation and memory, which makes people much less likely to be that consistent reach out person who's going to persist consistently go to all these small business owners and convince them to hire them. So for the unmotivated, I, you notice for almost all your questions, I have an answer that I feel pretty solid about. I do not have an honest, valid answer for helping the chronic procrastinator to not do it. Yeah, I, I wasn't talking about a you know extreme like crying procrastinator, but you know somebody normal, but who wants to try to, but hasn't you know gone to an open mic or gone up to the bookstore owner and asked that question. Is it, do, is there any tips for that yes. person? That's a baby step issue for that kind of person. You practice first of all. You some people need to script it and so you script what you're going to say. I'm not a big fan yeah. of that. Some people need to do it. Others practice into a mirror uh, without memorizing it. Others practice with their best friend or their family member. Others then, you know, make a list of bookstores that they want to talk to the bookstore manager. I wouldn't, by the way, I don't think that was me who said that. I didn't, I, I send people to the bookstore, <laughs> bookstore to, to look at the syllabi to see if they, in fact, they want to take that course or enroll in that program. It's an easy way to look at the books that are, uh, you know, that are required for various courses. I don't think I'd go to a bookstore owner and say, find the smartest person. Who's the smartest person? Because that bookstore owner doesn't know the smartest person. Uh, I may have said something like that, but that's not quite right. It doesn't feel like me. So let's just say you you're you got the money. You're going to college, whether it's a good idea or not. What are – I have two questions. One is, what are the classes, if you're going to go to college, yep. that you should take? Great question. If I'm going to college, because you know, most of you people are already there, they're not going to drop out because of my you know, little interview here. So um, there are courses, I don't know if the poll offers it. I'm a big believer in rhetoric. Rhetoric is a subject, it's the, it's the, uh, the art of argumentation. I don't mean fighting, or it, making logical, well-presented arguments. It may be called something else, but that is a skill that is useful in every possible profession as well as in your personal life. The Art of Rhetoric is a great course. Writing is such a critical course. Uh, I would be taking, and but I'd be very careful. There are some terrible professors and some great ones. One example of terrible is they give you very little feedback on your writing. Great is where they cover your page with feedback that helps improve your writing. I'd be taking writing courses that improve my writing and beg for feedback. Even if you got a course a professor who generally gave most students little feedback, I would go visit them in their office hours and say, I really want to become a better writer. Would you tear this apart? Tearing it apart is golden. I would uh, also take a course in statistics, but be very careful. Some disproportionately, the professors of statistics are poor communicators. So I make sure I found somebody who really made it crystal clear because another critical aspect of life is being able to think probabilistically. To think, what is the probability this is going to occur? What are the risks and rewards? How high the probability is? Learning to think probabilistically is an extremely important skill in business, in personal life, in work, even working for an organization. So a good elementary statistics course, just one, would be is very valuable. But of course, also extracurricular activities, because 
worker bee jobs, as I said, are going to largely be offshore or automated. It's important you develop leadership skills. So get involved in student organizations and clubs. Try to get to be a leader. Even if you screw up, you'll learn a lot from it. Beg for feedback. And whatever you do, beg for feedback. How can I be a better leader? So it could be a club, it could be student government, it could be the student newspaper, it could be a radio station. Try to get leadership roles and get feedback from people who are great leaders. That's Those are some of the things that come to mind as far as how to make the most of college. Can I play a little game with you? I wanna, I'm want i going to just tell you a college major and just from 1 to 10, I want you to rate it. Could you play that game? We'll see, and I may, may I'll offer some editorial comments about it. Okay. Film. Uh, maximum fun depends on how you, what you do. If it, 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 as in many majors, if you, films explore life's universals, love, hate, jealousy, corporations, nonprofits, generosity, selfishness. If you take a hard look at those, and, and, and the art of persuasion, you watch, you know, uh, various films they're generally designed to turn you into an environmentalist or a feminist or criticize you know wall street or whatever if you learn their powers of manipulation which are very powerful and then look at life's universals film is an amazing major and it's fun if you simply are going to be learning a bunch of abstract stuff that has no practical relevance or you're just watching movies and kind of mindless because you hear it's an easy major it's useless. So you can't give it a number. It depends on how well the major is taught by the, that particular institution and whether you grab for those critical elements that do potentially exist in a film major. Business. Uh, mixed. It seems like it's the most practical, but in many ways, it's my big problem in universities. Most business courses are taught by academics who have very little practical experience in the real world. Uh, I know a guy at a client who was a brilliant, you know, he got like, you know, 1500 something on the SATs and he uh, got a liberal arts major and he was selling pianos in a piano store. And, but he decided he was too smart and he wanted to do something. So he got a job as a, uh, got into a PhD program in business. Because most people want to go into business, they go into MBA programs. But he was very academic and scholarly and he got a PhD in business. He got hired at a faculty, I think it was, at, I don't remember, some university in Pennsylvania. And this guy with no business experience whatsoever is teaching students business. He doesn't know crap about teaching, about running a business. Running a business is about the art of figuring out how you can get stuff for free, rent for free, equipment shared, <coughs> identifying market needs really well through smart, clever interviewing without having to uh, have a big expensive focus group. And most professors do not have the expertise to do that. They, te they end up resorting to case studies or theoretical models. They don't know in the trenches what it really takes to run a business. So if you are a star and you're gonna get hired as an investment banker or a financier or get a CFA, some really high level job that is more that has more academics in it, fine. But if you're the typical person in business who needs to learn the basics, I'm not convinced that, that most of your business courses are going to teach you what that which is practically relevant. Computer science. If you have the natural talent for it, it is a field that is going to always be there because it's part of everything. It's part of medical drug development, equipment development, fabric development, 
communications, tele, you know, uh, uh, satellite communications. Uh, so if you have a natural tan, you know, if you're good at it, you could certainly, if you're intrigued by it, and if you want to try one course, certainly uh, a career that is likely at the higher levels to have good viability. But because of the international, the global nature of computer programming, where the work product can be sent over the internet, you generally need that program computer science skills plus management, leadership, and a business sense. So in itself, it's not going to be enough, I believe, for your generation over the arc of the 50 years that you're going to be working, that a 20-year-old now is going to work certainly until 70. I really believe that just being a, 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 you know, a computer geek, unless you're a genius who's going to be, you know, there's going to always going to be some room for the geniuses who are, for example, working in cybersecurity to try to foil the hackers. Absolutely. But those are the ones, frankly, who are at Caltech and MIT and Harvard. They're not in DePaul. Mm. So generally, computer science is okay, but it usually needs to be supplemented with business and leadership skills. What about engineering? Long, difficult. Uh, there are a lot of jobs, but I, I also like to go under the radar. Um, engineering in fields like I, it is, and I could be wrong, but I believe that while society is absolutely genuflecting before solar, wind, alternative, etc., all the physicists that I've spoken with have said that those are only going to represent a small part of the mix, no matter how much we subsidize it, and that the real answer is going to be in safer nuclear. So being a nuclear engineer, while because it's out of favor now, I think is a very smart major in the nuclear space. Also, uh, not electrical engineering, because that's really common and popular, but electronic engineering is a less popular niche. The people who really are creating those circuit boards inside of, uh, of gadgets, commercial gadgets, industrial gadgets, and, and you know, our, our next iPhone you know, 7, um, is, you know, I think electronic engineering is a nice niche. Also materials. I think we're getting ever more into the nano world of materials, and nano materials can be stronger, lighter, more stain resistant, etc. And people don't, and, and the, you know, while it's been said generations ago, plastics are getting ever more sophisticated, but at mm. the nano level. So I think that uh, that materials engineering is another under the radar uh, good field. So what are the worst college majors? The activist majors, in my judgment, because all they do is make you angry and don't give you no marketable skills and make you less hireable. So I'm not a fan of gender studies, racial studies, sociology, which is, you know, ultimately ends up being very overlapping with that. Uh, uh, certainly art history, uh, philosophy, while in theory, I love philosophy. It was the, it was the, I, I, I loved it, but in general, modern day philosophy majors are dealing with a lot of very abstract models that don't have, they're arguing over nothing. And so I can't be an endure, I'm in favor of taking a course in Western civilization Western or Eastern philosophies, absolutely one course, but a major, no. What about a history major? I think it's too often sold as, you know, he who doesn't live, remember history is doomed to repeat it or whatever. Um, I, I'm, it, it, it's an it depends. History can be a vehicle for teaching those universals with writing skills, persuasion, uh, 
learning some lessons from history, and it can be very fun if taught well. Uh, but it can also be taught very poorly, and it can be what there can be very often in history majors what's called a tyranny of content. There's they make you read so many books and about so many wars and so many things mm -hmm. that you end up remembering nothing. Yeah. My idea of a great course would be to take one critical decision. And in our politically correct times, I will take the example of Lincoln's decision as to whether to uh, uh, to how to respond to secession calls. If you took the entire course and looked at all the factors that influenced Lincoln's decision prior to the Civil War, there would be a lot more deep understanding of the dilemmas that people face in life rather than the typical survey courses. Okay, this course is from the Reformation to 1765. This course is going to be American history from you know, 1650 to 1810. You can't really change as a human being from those survey courses. And so what do you think are the best college majors? I actually like theater if it's done right. Wow. I was not expecting that. <laughs> because theater, if it's a combination, remember it's the same way as film, theater, plays are relatively short, unlike in, in your regular literature major where the books tend to be extremely long and take a lot of time to read and people don't just don't take the time. Their plays tend to be relatively short and they're visual. You can see them and they explore life's big issues. And as long as you are exploring all those issues in your reading and then being in plays, and very, very often theater majors get an edge in being able to be in campus plays, you're getting to read again and again and again a great play which is more likely to engender change in you and your values and your personality, whatever, than normal reading, cramming in the 20 books that you have to read for an English course. And it is also fun and teamwork and you gain poise and public speaking and the ability to take another person's perspective. When you're an actor, the best part of the most, the key to being a great actor is really being to empathize with your character and really understand it, as well as, the character you're interacting with on stage. So done well, a theater major is excellent. That's surprising because I, I, I was just listening to a video where you're talking about how it sort of sucks to try to be a professional actor. Yes, I don't say you should be a career. A, yeah. a career. I'm saying yeah. the skills you learn in the major can be invaluable for any aspect of professional and personal life. And it'd be fun. I'm not... I don't dismiss the value of fun. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny you bring that up. Uh, I, I do comedy. I do like some characters. I'm not a theater major. But uh, I actually made my first comedy video Great. with a friend of mine. And I play a character. I play a lot of southern characters who are ridiculous and over the top. Okay. And they might say, like, you know, Obama's a Muslim or whatever. And I just... And I, I'm, I want to start a YouTube channel and put it online. But I was wondering what you would think about sort of the digital, people's digital footprints and how afraid uh, younger people should be about their footprints and how that could affect their careers. I love it. Okay. First of all, I love that when people are trying to be creative. In the old day, whether it had been creative and they were, they were, you know, the Egyptians making hieroglyphs or the modern day version is absolutely creating YouTube videos. It's human beings have a desire for creative expression. I think that's wonderful. And, uh, and as long as you're, you're, I mean, race is the third, third rail. You're not allowed to, 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 unless you're Stephen Molyneux, 
you're you're not allowed to you know to blame black people for mm -hmm. anything. But as long as you avoid that third rail of race, you can be edgy and funny. You know, it's okay. You know, I don't think you know if you aspire to work for corporations. I don't think you should make a comedy video saying how corporations suck. But you know, other than that, I think it's great. You'll learn a lot of skills and you'll have a lot of fun. Uh, you know, and there is a reason that Snapchat and Instagram, if there are really edgy things you want to say about the group sex you're having or whatever, um, you know, I right, I wouldn't want a permanent digital footprint. I wouldn't put that on my Facebook because it's there. Your your timeline's there for everybody. But that's what you know, Snapchat and Snapchat and Instagram are about. So fine, play, have a good time. You know, I don't need you to be paranoid about about your digital footprint. You know, you can. There's a, a wide range of things you can you can do. Writing comments, writing review, Amazon reviews, creating videos. Those are awesome things to do, and that teaches you really great skills in a practical sense. That may eventually, for example, you know, social media is going to evolve. It hasn't yet developed into the the commercial powerhouse that that you know that for companies investing in social media to do their marketing but it it clearly it will continue to evolve and so by making yourself an active part of the world of social media in whatever forms that you find useful uh, i think is a good thing career-wise and personally and fun i want to jump back to the sort of robots future question yeah. Let me put it this way. What do you think, if gun to your head, what's the unemployment rate in 2040? Really bad. I'm really worried. I think I'm really worried. I, I, if I had to bet 2040, what we're going to have is a lot of government make-work jobs. Government is getting ever bigger. It doesn't take a genius to see it. The percentage of the GDP that is taxed, you know, that is government money taken from the taxpayer is growing. So what you're going to do is you're going to see great what's called redistributive justice. Even though already, if I remember correctly, the top 20% of earners pay 84% of the income tax, there's going to be more. They're going to continue to take more of the money. And what they're going to do is because it's, they're, they're very concerned about the poor, either for altruistic reasons or because they're afraid of the revolution, you're going to get the, you know, the Hillary Clintons of the world. They're going to take money and create more government jobs, uh, you know, whether they're needed or not. And that's going to keep some people working. But they're just, you know, as, as Margaret Thatcher there, famous uh, prime minister of Britain uh, once said, problem with socialism is you eventually run out of other people's money. And so there's just not going to be enough money, even if you tax the middle class like crazy, which they're going to be doing even more. Uh, there's just not going to be enough government make work jobs. So you're going to have a lot, a lot of unemployment for that bottom half. You and I are talking even about college students, but what about the, the students who are simply, we're not allowed to use the word, but are stupid. They learn poorly. They remember poorly. What about those who are utterly unreliable? What who have very difficult personalities? They have hot tempers. What if those that are lazy, the chronic procrastinators? There are millions and millions of those people. And in the old days, there were jobs for them on assembly lines doing janitorial. But if robots are doing even janitorial, and if robots are doing welding, like in, like in the old days, if the assembly lines are, like as I said, like the Teslas are largely devoid of human beings, I am terribly worried about the bottom half being unemployable and there's just not even going to be enough money for the government safety net so i see a, a literally literally i see a 40 percent unemployment rate by 2040 yeah. and under very great under, there'll be people with little bits of patchy jobs they'll get a job for a week here two weeks there and they may try to patch together two or three things but the under the 
the percentage of people who are fully employed, that is, working full-time at a job that is reasonably at their level, it's not like somebody with a DePaul degree working as a uh, in a car wash, uh, the percentage of people who will be fully employed is only going to be, in my judgment, about 30%. Do you know Andrew Keene? No. You should check him out. He's a... Uh, he wrote a book called The Internet's Not the Answer. He's an interesting guy, but they were doing a robots debate, um, Intelligence Squared, and he said that in the future it would be like 10 to 15% of the population would be this elite, which could sort of talk to the robots, fix the robots, and then everyone else. So do you sort of see a future where you have this huge mass of people who are unemployed, and then you have... And then the working people, you have that the computer scientists and roboticists, and then you have like massage therapists and people hug people for a living and, uh, you know, do stuff or like chefs and stuff robots can't do. Is that sort of yeah. what? Yeah. Yeah. I even think teachers are going to go away. I think that that, as you well know, there are some amazing teachers, a few amazing teachers, a lot of OK teachers and a lot of uh, teachers. And what we're going to see is we're going to see the whole university idea of the degree is going to go away and the university is going to go away and maybe even the high school is going to go away. There are going to be these modules that are going to be gamified, interactive video taught by the, the really brilliant, ama- not brilliant, amazingly interesting, transformational, really clear instructors. So that if you're taking calculus, they'll, it'll be online. And this, let's say they find that this, the most transformational instructors in Scotland. And in Scotland, this guy, all his students love calculus and learn it really well, and, and it becomes a part of their life. Well, they'll, they'll bring that guy in. They'll match him up with a game, gamification expert from electronic arts or uh, whatever, major game company, you know, and uh, uh, put together these amazing simulation courses with holograms and simulations. There'll be this amazing module, and uh, you'll take it. And some of these will be full-length courses, perhaps like calculus. Others will be like, you know, really short courses like, you know, like we see on YouTube videos now on, you know, how to fix you, clean your, you know, how to unclog your toilet. They're going to be all of these amazing, much higher quality, interactive, immersive, simulation-based uh, modules. And even so, even teaching jobs are going to go away um, by the tons, especially at the college level and maybe at the high school level. So, so let me go back to a question. I asked you, what do you thought were the best college majors? After yeah. what you just said, how can you say theater? Don't you have to say computer science? Don't you have to say you've no. got to be in tech? After no. no? Because if you're not good at that, you're not going to be one of those 10% that even get those jobs, especially because you're competing worldwide. There's always going to be some jobs. There's going to be haircutters. There's going to be they're going to be local managers of the Starbucks. People are going to always still drink coffee no matter what. People are going to want to go out to eat. People are going to need are going to need transportation. There's going to be somebody who's going to be uh, uh, the dispatcher for the automated cars, for the you know driverless cars. So, you know, the skills in a good theater major where you're learning, you know, though, you know, you're you're being a wise human being, not just for career but for human. I mean, I want my son or daughter to really think about the trade-offs between capitalism and socialism, between love and hate. The realities of people's, you know, how altruistic people are versus their, how, you know, smiley they are to your face and then they'll rob you blind where they can. You know, theater allows you to understand those universals, gives you the poise to be able to front of, be in front of people. Uh, not everybody is going to be a techie because we don't all, it's like I am a very good pianist. 
but I am born that way. I didn't learn it by slogging away at it. I became a professional pianist easily. And it's that way with computer stuff. Those people have to slog or not go at it. Should not be computer majors. Well, that's a question which is in college, like what's the path? Do you sort of pursue your talents or do what comes easily to you or do you learn skills which might be harder, sort of get your money's worth? You build on strengths. It's you're you know we're not allowed to say it, but we are largely genetic. You know, certainly environment matters, but a lot of us is genetic, and it's far smarter to build on your strengths than to remediate your weaknesses. It's like I I can't draw worth squat. So if I have a choice, so I'm in college. Am I going to build on my musical ability, or am I going to go and take art courses? You bet I'm going to build on my musical ability. No, I wouldn't. I actually took one music course in college, a music theory course, and I dropped it the first week because I laughed. It was only only an academic could could turn music into this soulless, arid, out of touch reality. What it takes to be a musician has nothing to do with being able to name a flatted thirteenth or note the recapitulation of theme B in the in this concerto. No. So, but you build on your strengths. So, if I was a musician and I wanted it, and if I was really only if I was really talented. Then I would go, and if I'm at college, I would definitely try to get to be a have my own one-man show and put it on in the student union. I might find some other great musician who's either a student or faculty member and hook up with them. <clears throat> I might take a course in the, in composition, one course. I build on strengths. What, what 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 about for somebody with who's has like a high verbal IQ? What, what would you suggest as far as majors or paths for them? That's very, uh, the, <clears throat> high IQ is a necessary and a critical and wonderful prerequisite to almost any career. But who are verbal? Not yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. It's too easy to say go to law school, do pre, pre-law. There's too many unhappy lawyers. I think really verbal people end up are, are good in leadership roles in whatever. So I would probably get to have them gain some technical expertise so they can at least talk with technical people because we live in an ever more technical world. But my high IQ, my verbal person, I'm going to have them take leadership courses, leadership experiences, get involved in student government, uh, you know, be a student member of the faculty senate, try to run a club, take a course in public speaking, join Toastmasters, which is a wonderful organization where you get to practice your public speaking in a very supportive environment. Uh, that's what I do. And then uh, either, again, try to work my way up from within an organization using my great verbal skills. Of course, there are you know, typically um, people who are very verbal, not just become generic leaders, but at a lower level, they get involved in communications, public relations, media relations, stuff like that. Well, for a new client, do you use the tests like Myers-Briggs? Do Studies have shown they're very invalid. The predictive validity of the Myers-Briggs and the strong interest inventory are very poor. So I, I stopped using them. I believe very strongly in the self-report being the most valid indicator. Because if you're self-reporting about your skills and your interests and your values, especially if I give you a bunch of choices, you're much more likely to give a valid uh, statement about, about who you are than through some, some test, which is where there's so many, we have to draw so many inferences from the test to get to who you are. So no, I don't use those tests at all. People have told me for a while, like you're a great idea person, but you don't, you don't, do anything with it. What do you, what do you say to someone who's like 
I, I want to learn how to turn ideas into actions, whether it's a business or a creative idea. I certainly think there are courses, maybe, again, maybe I'm being too simplistic, but to take an idea, I'm going to take an exam, and I'm going to have to get off the phone soon. Yeah, right? yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. So I'll just, let me, let me riff this. So idea into action. It's not the rocket science that they think, you know, you may need to take a course. The Small Business Administration offers courses in entrepreneurship and creating a business plan. So I'll stipulate to the fact that most people may need to do that. But in the end, it does come down to high IQ, and that is doing the following. Testing out the idea. Just because you love it doesn't mean it's going to work. So you can't afford an expensive focus group. So you, you find some people in your target audience, and you even if you have to hold a clipboard in front of the, the supermarket to talk to them, you ask their opinion, you may put, let's say there is, you know, three designs or something. You show them the three designs on this bit of cork board and you say, would you buy any of these? What would be the most you'd pay for it? You do without spending money. You go and test out the idea with your target market. That's very important. Then you say, okay, I'm going to figure out now. I'm going to need, these are the baby steps. I'm going to write down all the baby steps I need to go from this idea until I'm making my 200000 a year or whatever. And so I write down all the baby steps. Maybe I'd show my list to some successful business person and say, what am I leaving out here? But it's going to be about how am I going to raise the money? How am I going to make the project product cheaply? How am I, what are going to be the distribution channels? Am I, how am I going to use the internet? How am I going to use retail stores? How am I going to sell directly, um, directly to consumer uh, door to door? Whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to figure out how I'm going to do it. I love like the, I love really simple businesses. So a guy sold hats. He believes in what selling, like two-week lifespan hats, so that when the Golden State Warriors won 73 games in a row, all he did is he went, he had it from China, he had manufactured uh, a, a logo, 70 Golden, Golden State 73 or whatever, on his caps, and then he simply wore them on his head, so there was no store, but it was really high, at like 30 caps, he had huh. caps for sale as a child, so that kids, so that people going to the playoff games would see those hats, because they would stick out above, above everybody else, and he made a fortune. He bought the hats for a buck, sold them for 15 or wow. 10. That's, that's smarts. It's keeping your costs down, figuring out smart ways to market and distribute. And that's in the end. It, it ends up being simpler. By, as long as you keep your business simple, it's simpler uh, than the academics would think with all their multivariate models. I just wanted to... At throw the uh, two names at you and see what you thought. I want to know what you think of Dale Carnegie and how to win friends and influence people. It's tactically smart and uh, probably not bad net net. The idea really comes down to if you help somebody else get what they want, you're going to get what you want. And that includes listening to them, understanding their hot buttons, their needs. It can be viewed as manipulative, but as long as what you're doing is really trying to be helpful and not sell some crappy product or whatever, being a good listener, trying to develop a rapport, not being wrapped up in yourself is a good thing. Tim Ferriss. I hate him. He's, <laughs> he's full of crap. Four-hour work week is just not real. Uh, he sells a lot of books, four-hour cookbook. I hate that. In the real world, the people who are successful, they work long and they work hard and they work smart and they surround themselves around smart people and they're incredibly, they're very ethical. Tim Ferriss is a typical how-to huckster. I hate him. Yes, you may need, you know, fine. So you do some hiring, absolutely. 
or you know, offload some of your work to India for the ten dollar an hour work that you can get done there. Great. But the overall notion that you can sit, you know, with like the books on his cover with him lying on a on an air mattress on the water and doing nothing is just BS and and, and yielding completely unrealistic expectations for a life. Not to mention that the life well led is about working as hard as you can reasonably work ethically in the service of creating better products and services and improving humanity. So Tim Ferriss is the opposite of the kind of guy I like. And last one, dress for success. Last one, sorry. You know, I really, we are, human beings are shallow. We tend to judge people based on, on looks. Uh, so, you know, when I was young, I said, I don't give a crap. I'm going to wear my t-shirts and not let my hair go wild. But I realized that I pay too big a price for that freedom. So I'm not certainly not going to spend a lot of money on clothes, but I look presentable. I my rule of thumb when I'm out in the world is I want I don't want people to notice my clothes either because it's so expensive because then it looks like I'm just trying to gift wrap myself. I'm putting lipstick on a pig, but I also don't want to you know look like I'm trying to make a statement looking at how grungy I am like those people with who wear jeans with the with the deliberately with the holes all over their knees and whatever. I think you're just trying to make a statement to show how declasse you are. I don't believe that. I try to not sell myself based on my looks. I, as you can tell, I've tried to sell, you know, to try to be with you on the radio here on your show with as much authenticity and intelligence as I can. I'm not trying to sell myself on sizzle, but on steak. And that's how I feel about dressing for success. Marty Nemko, thank you so much. I feel like I should pay you money because you've been so <laughs> helpful <laughs> to what me. What I'm happy about is to share what I've learned over the years. I've written over 3,000 articles and seven books. My latest book I'm very proud of is the best of my 3,000 articles. It's called The Best of Marty Nemco. And I invite anybody to go to Amazon. You can look in free, you know, they can look inside the book for free. You'll see that it's filled with no nonsense. I think smart, not obvious ideas. So that, and I make nothing. I make a buck or two of books, not for the money. I really think I, the best help I can give is, is having people read my book, The Best of Marty Nemco.